There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with someone very special. If you listened to my top 10 countdown of CrimeCon, then you'll know who I'm talking about. That's right, none other than Jim Fitzgerald. Jim and I met at CrimeCon. Actually, he came up and introduced himself to me. He saw the title of my show, and as a Philly native himself, he was gracious enough to offer to join me on Twisted Philly. And today we had the opportunity to talk with one another. I know you're going to enjoy this episode just as much as I enjoyed talking with Jim. Today, I am speaking with Jim Fitzgerald, retired FBI supervisory special agent, criminal profiler, and forensic linguist. Jim, how are you today? Dina, I'm doing great. It was so fortuitous meeting you in Indianapolis, of all places, last month. And now here we are doing your podcast. Thank you so much for making time for me. I was so delighted when I met you at CrimeCon and really appreciative of the time that you took to talk with me and talk about your heritage from Philadelphia and your illustrious career in both Ben Salem Police and the FBI. So I'm really excited to talk with you today. Well, Dina, you know, I've, I've lived around the world or visited. I lived other parts of the country, but I'm a Philly guy, uh, born and bred, and that's never left my uh, my DNA. And, um, you know, between the Jersey Shore and, and the Washington, D.C. area and with kids and friends and family still in the Philly area, that's never going to change. Well, I know last week you were in New York City attending a red carpet premiere for the new Discovery original TV series Manhunt Unabomber, which is the story of how an FBI profiler, specifically you, Jim, helped track down the Unabomber. In the TV show, your characters played by actor Sam Worthington and Paul Bettany plays Ted Kaczynski. Congratulations. How exciting was that experience for you? Well, this whole process, uh, and if anyone's listened to anything else I've done, I use a, a word kind of over again, but it best describes uh, the feeling. It's surreal or surrealistic in what I'm going through right now to uh, have a, you know, upscale, class A, grade A miniseries and uh, major cable channel bring on some major actors, directors, writers to tell this story of at least part of my life. It's just almost dreamlike. It's 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 amazing. And I was on the set in Atlanta uh, back in uh, May watching them film a few scenes. And there are people who are calling Sam Worthington Fitz or Jim Fitzgerald. And he's saying words that I said 21 years ago while working the Unabomb case, because, of course, I talked to the writers beforehand. And it's just it's unbelievable. Now we're only like, you know, a week or so away from the actual August 1st premiere of uh, of the first episode. So it's been an amazing time. And I'm very thrilled to be a part of this whole process. Uh, and number one, back in the day, helping solve the case and catch this serial bomber. And then number two, being part of the, uh, the miniseries production. Well, I know Twisted Philly listeners will be fascinated to hear about how a kid from only Philadelphia winds up with a TV series about your incredible career as an FBI profiler. 
Before we talk a little bit more about Manhunter and the red carpet, I would love to ask you a few questions about when you were a young kid like so many of us growing up in Philly. I had the pleasure of reading a few of your books, and the one I want to talk about first is book one of Journey to the Center of the Mind. There were a few stories from your childhood that really stood out to me, and the first story was about your stolen red bike. Were you six then, or were you seven? I may have just turned six, I think the summer of 59, to give my age away here, whatever. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was it was really my first investigation. And um, as you've read and others read, my bike was stolen from in front of my Third Street house. I lived, grew up in the intersection of Third and Nidro. And basically, uh, I was so mad, so upset that I wound up getting an old picture of it. And I actually walked around to my neighbors and showed them this picture. And uh, and none of them saw anybody who took it or borrowed it or whatever. And finally, one old lady about three days later, you know, I think I saw your bike, Jimmy, over by the Acme parking lot. So I went over there with my mother. And sure enough, Dina, there was the bike. So the good news is I recovered my bike in uh, in uh, pristine condition. The bad news is I never made an arrest, even a citizen's <laughs> arrest. But, but that's okay. The good news was, and boy, I'll tell you what, that's imprinted in my brain. I never go any, I'm still an avid bike rider. I was all my life. I always lock it. Even if I'm going to be away for 30 seconds, I lock it. I will never let my bike be stolen again, or at least not without a fight. They need, you know, uh, wire cutters or something to sure. get through it. You know, reading about your early life growing up in Olney, the tenacity of that little boy uh, clearly stayed with you your your whole life. It was apparent to me that the idea of right and wrong and the ideas of fairness, but also standing up for yourself, were really a part of your DNA. Do you credit your parents for that? Was it simply a sign of the times? Yeah, my, my parents were, you know, blue collar, working class, but uh, they wanted me to be the first child in the extended family to go to college. And I have three older sisters and they didn't even get a chance to go to college, you know, very few women in the 50s and 60s were going to college, but they said, Jimmy, you're going to college. And of course, I would fight. I don't want to go any more school than I have to, you know, back as a little kid. <laughs> but they did push that in me. And I was the first member of my family to graduate college. I got a couple master's degrees after that even. But yeah, I, they, they did put that in me. My, my dad was a fighter. He was a quiet guy, a humble guy. But when push came to shove, he would let someone know what's on his mind, usually with a litany of uh, expletives that we won't repeat here. Uh, <laughs> and, and never those bad four-letter words, but just the name of the Lord thy God in vain every once in a while. But no, he, was, uh, he would sit down and talk to me and try to express the different philosophies of his, what he went through. I was born late in life to my dad. So my dad, he was born in 1904. In, on Alfred's Alley, of all places. And back then, Alfred's Alley was not the trendy, sort of expensive place to live now in Philly. It was a poor neighborhood. And he was one of 11 kids. And lo and behold, it all, uh, you know, it all came together for him. And, and he passed some of those virtues on to me, as well as my mother did, too, and my three older sisters. So uh, it was a good life. It just you got to work hard, Jim. No one's going to give you anything in life. And uh, if you want to get ahead, you got to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and do it yourself. And that's I still follow that philosophy to this day and do my best to pass it on to my three sons. There were so many beautiful references, and thank you for sharing all of that. I was surprised when I read about your dad being born on Alfred's Alley because to me, I know it is you know one of the oldest inhabited streets in the u s and I wasn't aware of the challenges that neighborhood faced when when your dad was born there. And so I really want to thank you for inviting readers through these books into so much of your family and your life and sharing so much of yourself and and of your upbringing with us because they were really beautiful stories. It seemed like at a very young age, your dad noticed your interest in criminology. It wasn't just recovering that stolen bike. 
Uh, you could say that. I think he always had an interest in uh, true crime. The Lindbergh kidnapping case to him was the crime of the century, and quite frankly, it probably was to the rest of the U.S. And he would talk about that all the time. And the first book I ever read, the first adult sort of book I ever read, I was probably around 11 years old. I walked down to the uh, library, the Olney branch at uh, Fifth and Tabor, and I took out a book called Kidnap. Not the Robert Louis Stevenson kidnapped, but just the word kidnap. And it's about uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping. And I was fascinated as a young kid reading this about this young baby kidnapped in the early 30s from their home, really right across the river from us in New Jersey. And again, in the 1930s, and this was long before I was born. But that whole case and how it played out with wood examination and the early days of fingerprint examination, the early days of FBI involvement. And of course, there was language involved, too. And combine that with my mom's love of crossword puzzles, cryptograms and the game Scrabble, which I had played with her since I was like nine or 10 years old. I just had this inherent love for language and actually it helped me solve some cases later in my life, how it all came together. It sure did. When you graduated from Penn State and then joined the Ben Salem Police Department in 1976, how was that for you as a Philadelphia kid trading in his little tin badge with his name engraved on it for a real one, defining your career as protecting and serving communities in suburban Philadelphia? Yeah, and uh, life wasn't always perfect as a young kid, if you read in book one. A couple little missteps on my part, uh, sure, but sure. Uh, we got through those and uh, graduated Penn State with a degree in what they then called law enforcement and corrections. I didn't go get my college degree to actually be a police officer. I thought maybe I'd get right into the feds or maybe a probation, parole officer, something like that. But the times are tough uh, in terms of the mid-70s and kind of a recession going on. And I just applied to every PD around uh, around the area. And uh, lo and behold, Ben Salem came through first and uh, went off to the academy for uh, three months in the fall of 76. And next thing you know, uh, yeah, I'm carrying a real badge for the first time, not a fake tin one. My dad bought me those early uh, years ago. And here I am out in the streets of Ben Salem, which was, you know, it's a sub suburb of Philly and it's not some of the, the badlands or, or other parts of Philly that some people uh, talk about with high crime. But as a racetrack in there, a couple big malls, Route 1, the Turnpike, I-95, all intersecting. We were busy, a mid-sized suburban PD, and uh, lots of stories came out of that if you went through uh, book two at all, as I'm sure you did. I did. In your second book, when I was reading about your promotion to parole sergeant, there was a very difficult case right before and then soon after that transfer. I believe it was Joe Sheck. And it was surprising to read about a lot of the challenges that you and, and probably some other officers, too, experienced because of some of the political inner workings of the department. Yeah, uh, I was a uh, new detective sergeant and um, relatively new. And this one of the cases assigned to me was uh, of a guy. We didn't even know who he was at first, but he was basically at act very odd with young teenage boys in the area. And I had a little bit of information on a whole lot. But anyway, it turns out his name was Joe Sheck, and he wasn't just a regular Ben Salem resident. He happened to be actively involved in the Boy Scouts, in the Knights of Columbus with the Catholic Church in Ben Salem. And oh, yeah, it also happens he was a township auditor. He was in an appointed position of auditor within Ben Salem Township. Now, all of a sudden, I'm investigating this guy. As you may know, Dina, the, the PD went through some political changes in and of itself. So at this point in my career, I'm on the negative side of the ledger in terms of how the police management looked at me. There was a, definitely a, dis, a, a time of the Ben Salem PD was a dysfunctional PD in the mid 80s, as I write about uh, over numerous chapters. Mm -hmm. So here I am now investigating a politician sort of appointed by this new crew. 
And lo and behold, I arrest the guy and I get all kinds of heat for, you know, why didn't I tell people uh, in advance who I was going to arrest him? And I was afraid of doing exactly that because somebody could have given him advanced information. He could have taken off, whatever. And then I go to the preliminary hearing a few weeks later in which, you know, we, we lay our case out. We put this young boy in in which this man actually exposed himself to at the Ramblers Field uh, off of Humeville Road. And this boy gave great testimony. Then one of the politicians in the back of the room says to some other police officer, Fitzgerald better watch out what he's doing here. It could cost him his job. A little bit of nerve-wracking time frame. If a police officer learns you arrest a politician, you have some other answers, especially in a town like Ben Salem back then. Ben Salem's a fine place now. I know it's been back in the news with this whole DiNardo case, but Fred Heron, Fred Heron runs a tight ship there. He was a rookie when I left in 87, getting a little ahead of ourselves here. But, uh, but that was a fascinating case. Joe Sheck eventually worked out a plea deal and uh, he pleaded guilty. And as far as I know, he didn't uh, reoffend and that's fine with me, but he also held no more political office in Ben Salem either. That was an unnerving part of the second book for me. And obviously, knowing I'm going to be talking to you today and knowing about your illustrious career since then, I know that it eventually worked out for you. But reading it while you were in the midst of that, it was I was kind of nail biting as I was reading those chapters, waiting to see what was going to happen and, and how the police department and elected officials would respond to what was really you doing the right thing and upholding the responsibility of your position. You know, I'll tell you, Dina, I, I, I wrote this book over about two years, you know, starting maybe in 2014, uh, give or take. And I, I'll tell you, it actually gave me some nightmares. It's one thing being a police officer out in the streets and watching for the bad guys with guns and knives and what else they may try to do to hurt an officer. But when you got to look and cover your back when you're inside headquarters itself, that can be a little scary. And there was, it wasn't just me. There was a group of us that were on the outs with that administration in the mid 80s. It was a very difficult time. Uh, we had to do what we had to do. I think one of the nice, the, the, the core characters in the book is a guy named Jerry Judge. Mm-hmm. He's a former professional boxer. He was a police officer, and we um, nominated him as and elected him as our Police Benevolent Association president. So the two of us would go back and forth, and we would come up with plans with some other team members how to you know thwart some of the stuff that the PD was doing at the time in, internally and politically in those types of ways. And the two of us worked really well together, and he was kind of the strong physical force that helped uh, our side finally win. And I was the one I would type a lot of the letters and send them off to the uh, Bucks County Courier Times. So, you know, we were kind of like tag team partners in a boxing match, if you will. And and to this day, he said some of the you know toughest fights he ever had were those two years at the Ben Salem PD, uh, despite him fighting Larry Holmes and uh, George Foreman and some other people like that. So, uh, yeah, there's a great, a very interesting cast of characters throughout the book. Uh, Rich Viola, who was the chief back then, I'm still in touch with him. He was kind of a renaissance man to me, the first guy I ever knew who had his nails polished and mm-hmm. manicured. And uh, this is kind of before, uh, you know, a lot of guys were doing that. And uh, just a cool guy, but he was a tough guy. He could talk the talk, walk the walk. He was a real influence on me. And actually, he played a little role in solving the Unabom case about 15 years after all this stuff happened. Uh, interesting how all these little things come together uh, in my three books. Of course, I designed them that way. And of course, they're done uh, accurately so. Well, I enjoyed all three of them so much. Now, I know in 1987, you made the move to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. A lot of questions I got from listeners when I let them know I was going to be interviewing you was, how does somebody make a move like that? How do you go from a local police municipality to the FBI? Adina, it was the, uh, it's a very good question on the part of your, uh, of your listeners. It was a very big decision for me. I was 34 years old at the time, Philly born and raised and, and resided, you know, my whole life. 
And I know you joined the FBI, you pretty much have to move to some other part of the country. You're not going to stay in your hometown. So I went through the process and I was one of these deals and I'm sure other people have gone through this. All right, I'll put in for this job or this position and at the last minute, I'll make a decision. My family at the time wasn't crazy about moving you know, two sons and they were already like, uh, you know, uh, nine and six and uh, they weren't, you know, real little kids and we're just worried about all these type of things and these decisions I had to make. But then finally we found out that um, the FBI came up with a new plan about where where new agents will be assigned. And that is, if you put in for New York City, you were pretty much guaranteed you would get it because New York was a tough office to staff, high cost of living, and guys who grew up in farm country in the Midwest and even the West Coast didn't want to move to New York City and have to pay those high prices. So my uh, recruiter uh, at the Philly office of the FBI said, oh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that commute back and forth to New York City right from where you live, Jim, in Bucks County. For clarification here, my commute from my home to Ben Salem PD was about four minutes. That's if I hit the red light. Uh, <laughs> I all of a sudden made a decision to put in for New York City. Well, at the academy, I did, in fact, get my first assignment to New York City. And it went from a four-minute car ride to a two-hour one-way car ride up there and, of course, two hours back. It was a difficult decision on a number of different levels. But quite frankly, I, I had been so beat up, not physically, but just mentally, the Ben Salem PD. We did eventually turn things around. And from 86 on, the PD has been run, you know, very well under a few different chiefs, including Fred Aaron today. But um, I was just so beat up. I just needed a change. I had to get out. I had to say, you know, because these for those two years, the police managers were doing their best to put me down. There's even a reference in the upcoming Manhunt, the miniseries about how I was a beat cop and put on the graffiti squad my whole career. When you were well, in the vandalism little- squad. Vandalism Squad, right? You read it, and uh, and the writer picked up on that because he read uh, my earlier books too, and <laughs> and that's actually a true reference. It wasn't my whole career on the graffiti, but but to screw with me, this detective sergeant with a college degree working on my first master's degree at Villanova, they'll show me. And instead of working the serious cases in Ben Salem, I was in charge of all vandalisms. Uh, that could be sort of ego deflating, uh, especially when you solve some other cases before that under a different administration. And then I always remember looking at the dates exactly 10 years later, I helped solve the Unabomb case. And it's strange in life how those things go from assigned graffiti and, and vandalism cases to solving one of the biggest investigations of all time back then in the United States. It's absolutely incredible. When you transitioned to New York and the time that you spent in the FBI before becoming a forensic linguist and profiling in that space, what were your first few years like at the FBI? What kind of cases were you working on? And, you know, maybe a little bit from your book, how was it different than your experience with Ben Salem? Oh, it was it was night and day. And uh, I was um, and there were some great investigators and officers to Ben Salem PD, believe me. But going up to uh, my first my first squad in New York was the bank robbery task force. I didn't even realize how. When I first got on, how respected and how, uh, how how well known it was, but it was a, it was a task force of NYPD detectives and FBI agents, and and these are some of the cream of the crop, the best uh, that law enforcement has to offer, certainly in the New York area. And I was put right in there, and and I probably handled maybe a half a dozen bank robberies in Ben Salem when I was there, including making a, a bank robber arrest. 
which cleared up a bunch of cases uh, east of the Mississippi. But but in New York, you know, three times a day, I'd go out and handle bank jobs in different banks. And they're so big up there. And it happened so often. Some of these banks, they'd shut down the teller booth, if you will, or the teller portion where the actual robbery occurred, but they'd still be open for business for the rest of the bank. Where like in Ben Sound, they'd close down for the entire day oh, and, wow. and no wow. further customers. But but these banks in New York, you know, unfortunately had their experience with these things. And uh, we know we took the film and we dusted for fingerprints, interviewed everybody. And uh, we solved a lot of them. But of course, some you, you couldn't solve all. So they were the first big thing. I worked a few sex. I was assigned to a sex crime sort of sub squad on the bank robbery squad. And one of the first big arrests there was a very sad day for the FBI. But we actually investigated uh, a guy named Robert Taus, uh, T-A-U-S. And he was an FBI agent working in New York in uh, foreign counterintelligence. But here he also liked young teenage boys out in his uh, Long Island neighborhood. And we started getting wind of this. And I was involved in that whole process, interviewing the young boys, very similar in some ways to the Joe Sheck case you brought up when I was in Ben Salem, but a bit more expansive here. And, and this guy was, in fact, actually sexually abusing these boys. So uh, he was eventually arrested, of course, fired from the FBI. And he's still in jail, I think, some 30 years uh, later or, or almost. It's uh, quite frankly uh, where he deserves to be. So. I wound up meeting a number of celebrities. We also would work threat cases there. Jane Pauley to uh, Brian Gumbel to um, uh, Rush Limbaugh's, uh, you know, uh, producer. But then I finally got a call that Donald Trump was having some problems at his Trump Tower with some bizarre phone calls coming in like every few minutes. And I went up there, met the man and his security director, treated me very nicely. And, um, you know, Mr. Fitzgerald, this Mr. Fitzgerald. Yes, Mr. Trump. Oh, call me Donald. Uh, OK. And he offered to treat me to lunch. And I said, no, that's OK. I did have some other plans that day. So we actually helped him. You know, he was the victim here. He was not the subject or anything like that. And it was a technical thing coming from New Jersey. But uh, to actually have been in the presence of a future president before, of course, he was even thinking in those terms, or at least that we knew, uh, you know, kind of interesting looking backwards uh, in, in, in that regard. So, um yeah. And, I, you know, Ruli Giuliana, Giuliani, you know, met him. He was the assistant US, or he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, and just uh, just a number of the people that I would come upon in my New York days was interesting. And some of them, of course, made their names even bigger uh, when they, um, uh, you know, years later uh, in politics or whatever field they may have chosen. Now, one of the things that I read was during your time with the FBI, you created something called the Communicated Threat Assessment Database. Can you tell me what the CTAD does and, and why you developed it and how is it still used today? Yeah, through my seven years in New York and working a bunch of interesting cases there, uh, I was promoted to become a profiler. My very first case after I graduated the little mini profiling academy of 12 weeks, they sent me to San Francisco to work on the Unabom Task Force. And that's when I really got my first taste of language as evidence. I had a master's from Villanova in organizational psychology, uh, but really nothing specific to do with language. And next thing you know, um, I solve a case using language being Unibom. And it was a team effort, by the way, but I focused on the language part. And that was the critical element to get the search warrant to get in Kaczynski's Lincoln, Montana cabin. And people can watch the rest of the story on the upcoming miniseries or, of course, read my book. Three. Lo and behold, I find how valuable language is. And I start getting all these cases in the FBI of threat assessment, uh, annoying, harassing, stalking type letters. Then, of course, it shifts to email. 
but all kinds of different communications. And I said, we got to find a way to put these in a database somehow. And I, um, I went back to school for my second master's degree at Georgetown, this one at my, uh, in linguistics. And I realized uh, these things called corpus or corpora to be plural. And that's basically a collection of text. And I said, we need something to organize all these threatening communications. So I came up with CTAD, as you said, the Communicated Threat Assessment Database. I'm not a computer software guy, so we hired software people to come in. But I basically laid out on like index cards how every single screen and subscreen should read and and how it should be, uh, uh, you know, they should be linked and fully searchable. And yeah, it's the, um, to this day, it's the only corpus of its kind that's genre specific, all about criminally oriented and problematic and threatening communications. And now it's millions and millions of words strong, several millions of words strong with, with, you know, I think 50 or 80,000 different letters. The FBI never had this before. I'm very proud to say, uh, that was uh, my baby and it's still going strong. It sounds absolutely fascinating, especially all the different types of cases that you would be involved in and the different people that you were interacting with. Being a forensic linguist, you really were the first of your kind in the FBI. Do I have that right? You do have that right, Dina. And I, uh, I, w- I was very happy to some bosses and supervisors who gave me the leeway. They kind of gave me a, an internal FBI scholarship to go back to school. And I said, the only one in the... So, all right, real quick here, Dina. It was tough to go from Ben Salem to New York. But at least I was coming home every day. I took the promotion in 95 to become a criminal profiler, and I, I had a move. It was very difficult on my family, and it didn't necessarily work out the best family-wise, but everything is fine now. But here I wound up living in uh, you know northern Virginia when I was actually assigned to the academy and going and, and doing everything back and forth that way. But I still never left my Philly roots, had the house at the beach, would come here every chance I could, every other weekend back to Philly in that regard. But uh, but yeah, as far as forensic linguistics go, I had some great uh, bosses that were very uh, supportive. I got my second master's degree, you know, one course at a time at Georgetown. Uh, they were very supportive there. I worked some of the, you know, uh, 9-11 happened during my courses and uh, and the D.C. Sniper and Anthrax, not necessarily in that order. But uh, but the professors there were very good to me and say, hey, Jim, do what you got to do. I said, well, believe it or not, professor, there's some language involved in this. Can I run something by you? And they would actually give me some guidance. I learned from them not only the theoretical parts in the classroom, but I actually show them a letter. Well, here's what I see in this letter, Jim. And, and that just helped enhance my overall skill set uh, in terms of looking at threatening, harassing, or criminally oriented communications. And uh, and we helped solve a lot of them. And we brought, I brought forensic linguistics into the FBI. And um, it was there until I retired in 07. And I'm not sure where they are in that department now, but they still do have agents running the CTAD, the database we referenced. And, uh, and that's going strong. And they're still helping to solve case by linking communications and, you know, anonymous writings that way. It's still there, but I was very glad to be at the vanguard of that whole forensic linguistic movement in the FBI. Jim, can you tell me how much that you can determine about someone when you're profiling them by reviewing their word choices? Like, for example, can you determine a region where they're from or perhaps where they were raised? Absolutely. And I've uh, I've helped solve a number of cases or at least point to some very specific suspects in that regard using the science of linguistics. And I've done it in numerous cases and, and you know, even starting with the Unabomber before I even had a my formal education uh, or courses in linguistics. But uh, but certainly uh, and, and, and in fact, in the Unabomb uh, miniseries coming up, Manhunt the Unabomber, I told the writer about this and, and it was a real case of me first going to San Francisco. And remember, 
I never really lived anywhere else except Philadelphia. Before then, they shipped me out to the to the Unabom Task Force in San Francisco. And after a couple of days there, I remember turning to somebody saying, hey, can I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thirsty. Does anybody have a bottle of water? <laughs> and that may, that may sound very normal to some of your listeners, but uh, I hate to, you know, challenge anybody here. But the rest of the country pronounces H2O as water. And, and the people kind of they, they joked and made fun. And I would make fun of some things maybe they said or pronounced. But for the first time, I said, you know what? I'm not in Kansas anymore. It's specifically Alney or Philadelphia or Ben Salem. And, you know, this guy, this Unabomber guy is writing this manifesto. He's writing all these letters. Maybe there's something in there I can find that can help locate this guy and put him in place. And not only geographically or regionally, but also by age, by, um, uh, you know, education, by perhaps ethnicity. And uh, and luckily, the bosses out there uh, at the Unibom Task Force were very um, uh, open to that idea. And they really let me focus on nothing but the language. I was a seasoned investigator, 11 years as a cop. Seven years in New York, a brand new profiler. We've had other profilers. The great John Douglas did some early assessments on the Unibomb case. And, and you know, he, he came up with some good stuff. But I said, you know what? That's been done. Let me try something different here. They were taking the documents and looking at them for fingerprints, for indented writings. You know, this brand new DNA stuff that was just coming out. But but very few people were actually breaking down the language, the words themselves and uh, and trying to figure out what they may mean. So. That's what I did. Um, my best form of research was the, f- the first 10 pages of a dictionary. Have you ever looked at the first 10 pages of a dictionary? It's kind of a nice summary of how, I guess, any language, but we'll say English language works. And uh, I, I read through a few different dictionaries, and I went up getting a linguistics book from somewhere. And then, lo and behold, it just opened my eyes and, and the doors to that Unabomb case. And it was actually language that brought down the Unabomber. Uh, and I'm very proud to have been uh, the major component of, of the language aspect of that case and, and which led to his arrest and ultimate conviction. Something that was amazing to me about that is that your probable cause affidavit about Ted Kaczynski was, I believe, the very first time in federal court where text analysis was used to obtain a search warrant. You're correct. And um, I didn't even use the word forensic linguistics back then because I wasn't a linguist. Uh, I guess arguably it was forensic, but I just said, here's the text analysis, or even we may even use the term comparative analysis. And I was even hesitant. I knew enough about the courts. I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, I've been through the courts enough that if I, you know, we, we learn as young cops in the academy, you don't put opinions in your reports. You only put facts. So now as an expert in this field, I can go into a courtroom and render opinions, or I can write a report and render an opinion. But I was very conscious of that back then. So what I did for my 50-page affidavit I just wrote it for the common person. I wrote it for the judge to read and make his or her own decision. We don't know who it would be at that point. And it so happens I just made it 50 pages long with boxes and, you know, a column on the left side of Kaczynski's writings and a column on the right side of the Unabomber's writings. And, and lo and behold, I had about 600 plus different examples of very similarly um, worded sentences, some identical uh, some close, some where the verbs were transposed or just slightly different wording. And the judge looked at it with no opinions on my part at all. And he said, basically, um, I'm going to sign the search warrant. Let's go get it. And real quick here, Dina, before I forget, the most key part of that was the Unabomber's use of the expression, the axiom, the proverb. Well, you can't eat your cake and have it, too. 
And I'm sure your listeners will realize that most of us say you can't have your cake and eat it too. So I was the first one to pick that up in the manifesto because it wasn't really fingerprints or indented writing. And I looked and I said, well, he kind of got this wrong. We all say you can't have your cake and eat it too. I'm not sure what this means, but this guy's a perfect writer, makes virtually no mistakes, but he kind of got this wrong. All right. So long story short, the manifesto was published. A guy named David Kaczynski, among 2000 other people who we had as suspects at the time, he calls up the task force and says, I think it may be my brother living in a cabin in Montana. But as any investigator knows, you just can't go and arrest somebody based on what someone else says. We had to prove our case. So luckily, the mother and the brother saved all the documents. Ted Kaczynski wrote them over the years. And here in one of the letters the mother saved, it was actually a letter to the editor of the old Saturday Review magazine. And the very last paragraph, I'm just going through it one day, you know, blah, 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 evils of technology, the environment, all this stuff. And at the very end, well, you can't eat your cake and have it, too. It's the only other place I could find even in the nascent, you know, internet back then of someone who used that particular expression. And that's for the first time when the prosecutor assigned to the case said, Fitz, we're onto this. We got it. Let's get this search warrant prepared and let's go lock this guy up. And, uh, and the other 600 examples I, uh, found were the icing on the, on the cake, so to speak, uh, that, uh, you can have and eat at the same time, according to Ted Kaczynski and the Unabomber. So, yeah, language, um, you can tell these things about people, their educational level, their ethnicity, where they grew up. Um, you have to have enough writings. You can't just have one sentence and, and, and come up with anything there. But if you have multiple pages, multiple documents, and what always helps is if someone was emotional. Emotionality plays a big role in these type things. So to get some professor's uh, article he wrote about, you know, uh, quantum physics or something, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell as much there from a letter that perhaps he wrote about some issue that's very important to him. And we have a number of those with Kaczynski back in the day. And of course, his manifesto was very personal and he was very emotional when writing that, too. And that's when you get people really resorting to their vernacular, their base language features, um, including uses of punctuation, stylistic features. When all those factors come together, uh, you can really come up with a profile of a person and in my uh, education, my experience after you know these 20 plus years, I've um, been right almost every time in what I can come up with there. And that applies to spoken language, too. As we know, we can all tell a New York person, a Boston person, somewhere in the deep south. Uh, but writing is a little bit trickier. It has to do more with uh, word choices than word pronunciation, of course. So but uh, these things all help solve cases in forensic linguistics and uh I'm still doing it today to some degree in the private sector. Since we've been talking so much about the Unabomber case, would you tell me about the evolution for the TV series Manhunt? Were you approached by Discovery? Did you pitch them a concept? How did this come about? Well, um, a good friend of mine named Jim Clemente, I met him on the first day uh, at the FBI Academy way back in 1987. We kind of... um, followed each other in our career. Uh, We both went to New York. We both were working the biggest case at the time. He was working um, the Whitewater case involving Hillary Clinton's, uh, you know, billing records. And I was working Unabom. And we used to joke about that with each other. Um, Lo and behold, we went up profilers together. I retired in 07. He's there. Fitz, we've always been talking about doing a screenplay. Jim always had Hollywood connections and friends. and And he got me hooked up with the TV show Criminal Minds. I'm still one of their technical advisors. Um, and, uh, and some other shows. He retired in 09 and we, we, we got real serious in putting together a, uh, a screenplay. We brought in a guy named Tony Gittleson from out west in LA 
lo and behold, we pitched to a few different places, got the word out that we had a, you know, a pilot set up. Uh, Discovery was one of them. Um, Kevin Spacey's production company got involved. They love it. They loved my character. Uh, Jim and Tony somehow didn't survive <laughs> those cuts. That's a whole other story. But, uh, but I, it, it was, I am a consulting producer on the show. And basically we signed the contract back in 2015. They brought a new writing team in and a director, uh, head writer, Andrew Sajowski, uh, the director, Greg Utanis, and they both did a great job on the uh, upcoming miniseries. And I was obviously a, uh, they interviewed me on multiple bases that I gave them an outline of my, Unibomb chapter from book three. I gave them my PowerPoint presentation, all the notes and articles, things I've written over the years, book chapters, other book chapters I've written, and they put the case together from there. Uh, I should say they put the mini series together from the case information I gave them. And that's kind of how this whole thing came about. And first, there was going to be a theatrical release. You know, I mean, this is years ago. And then finally, Discovery came in and they wanted to hit the ground running with, I guess this is technically their second. Uh, scripted miniseries, but they really went full out on this, getting a top level cast and, um, and, and writers and directors, like I said, and they're spending lots of money on, on production. And, uh, and, uh, I'll tell you the way they captured, I was on the set. They captured the mid nineties FBI office area. <laughs> I think better than it really was back in the day. <laughs> it sounds silly, but I mean, they it just seem so authentic with these old, big old computers and the fax machines and the old, you know, uh, you know, push button phones and whatever, and uh, the older cars and all the things they did. They recreated the cabin so authentically because I gave them all these pictures of the cabin from the real cabin because I was in Kaczynski's cabin in Montana. And here I looked on the shelves of the um, of the pretend cabin they made for the show. And almost every item is up there, a, a container of Quaker oats and a Tide detergent box, which he kept bomb parts and things in those typed containers. But they did such a great job. So, and yeah, now it's all coming to, uh, all coming to fruition. I do want to say to your listeners, I'm trying to get this out to everybody. My character in this miniseries is sort of a composite character. Um, there are some things that, you know, Sam does playing me that I didn't do. Um, much of what I did, he does portray most of the language parts. You know, there are some things that no agent did that they have the Fitz character doing. So I am a composite character. There is some literary license. I'm just putting it out there generically. People can read my book chapter. And as you know, it's a long chapter on the Unabom case because it was a 17 year long case. And by the way, for the younger, younger listeners, Unabom is an acronym. It stands for University Airline Bombings because the first victims of the of this serial bomber were, in fact, universities and airlines. So a lot of younger people don't remember what even the Unabom word, you know, represents. So now they know. It was a great chapter, and, and I can't encourage folks enough to take the time and get all three of the books in the series. Uh, it's just a, an amazing evolution of your life and your career and the impact that you've had on so many high-profile cases in our country. Uh, when I was talking to my daughter about the time you and I were going to be spending together, I have to tell you what she was most impressed about is your technical consulting work on Criminal Minds, because that's one of her favorite shows. So I guess for a 16-year-old, capturing and identifying the Unabomber isn't as impressive as working on Criminal Minds. <laughs> and there's there's great folks there, the actors, the writers. Uh, Jim Clemente is now one of the writers there. And, uh, I still go out. I'm, I'm going to try to get there this week. I'm going to L.A. for yet another red carpet event on Wednesday evening, and I'm sure uh, the social social network will be alive with different uh, tweets and uh, Facebook stuff. Uh, and people can follow me, by the way, Jay Fitz Journey 
That's my Twitter uh, name borrowed from my book. So Jay Fitzjourney. And I'm on Facebook. I just James R. Fitzgerald. Look me up. And, and yeah, the books just search my name. A few bookstores are carrying them. Um, I think the third book, will, will, once the miniseries starts, will really get out there. But certainly on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you can get the books. And um, if some, and there's a few book signings. I'm doing a book signing on August 5th at the Museum in uh, Washington, D.C. So anybody uh, who happens to listen to this wants to stop by, I'd be glad to uh, sign a book for you. That's a great spot. I um, I used to have to travel to D.C. for work quite a bit, and, and I loved going there. You are an incredibly busy man. I'm so grateful for the time that you spent with me. I know we've taken a, a good bit of time this morning, and you've got some really exciting activities coming up this week. I'll certainly be sharing your social media profiles on my pages. I know there's folks that already follow you. So many of my listeners were so excited to find out that we were going to be talking today. And I will absolutely be tuning in on August 1st for Manhunt Unabomber. I think it's going to be a fantastic and fascinating show. So congratulations again. Thank you, Dina. And um, go Eagles, go Phillies, Flyers and Sixers. <laughs> I'm still a Philly guy at heart, no matter what uh, you see in the books and the miniseries. So, uh, and I have no plans of leaving anytime in the future. I think it gets in our DNA and we can just never entirely walk away from it. I hear you. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. It was a pleasure talking with you. You're welcome, Dina. We'll try it again somewhat. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Jim, I can't thank you enough for the time that you spent with me. I know that you're incredibly busy. You've got so much going on right now, especially with the premiere coming up for Manhunt on Discovery. As Jim mentioned, you can follow him on social media and find out more about everything he has going on on his website. Manhunt Unabomber premieres August 1st on Discovery, and I know that I will be tuning in. I'm sure so many of you will be, too. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.